I hate when people complain when they haven't watched the show and they expect you not to talk about it. Yeah, you hate when people complain. You complain about so many things all the time. When? I don't complain. Like right I'm now, like you're... I'm complaining about complainers. Well, speaking of complainers, your friend Tucker, was he let go? <laughs> he was let go. Happens to so, the best of us. Oh, man. <laughs> Where are you going to get your news yeah. story? <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that the sucky thing? It's like no matter what your fucking job is, you can get fired. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Welcome to People vs. Algorithms, a conversation about patterns in media, technology, and culture. I'm Brian Morrissey. I write the Rebooting Newsletter and host the Rebooting Show podcast. Each week, I'm joined by longtime media executive and investor Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter, and Alex Schleifer, former head of design at Airbnb and founder of Universal Entities. Something that's come up in this podcast is we are living at a time when an era of publishing is closing. Last week's announcement that BuzzFeed News would cease to exist again brought this point home. Companies like BuzzFeed were seen as the future in the period roughly running from the emergence of the ruins of the financial crisis up until the late 2010s. BuzzFeed's expansion into news in 2012 by hiring Ben Smith, known for his frenetic high metabolism blogging at Politico, was seen as a watershed moment. The BuzzFeed newsroom was innovative, marrying the mastery of social media distribution that was the hallmark of BuzzFeed with the serious work of breaking news. By 2014, the New York Times hand-wringing innovation report was name-checking BuzzFeed 23 times, and the report's existence itself was first reported by BuzzFeed. And this was a time when BuzzFeed envy was common among top publishing executives that consciously or not mimicked BuzzFeed's approaches. I mean, even the New York Times began writing listicles. But BuzzFeed News never quite made sense as a business. It wasn't aligned with how BuzzFeed made money, and its dependency on the distribution hacks that defined the social media era proved untenable in the long run. This week, we discuss what went wrong and look ahead to how those lessons of this era of publishing can be used in what lies ahead, which hopefully will create more sustainable and stable media businesses. And I might add, uses AI as a tool to make publishing more human and not less so. This is something we get into in the back half of the episode. As always, send us your feedback. My email is brian at therebooting.com. And also leave us a rating and a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get this podcast. We want to keep growing the podcast. I mean, it's going in the right direction. Also, any ideas you have on that front, please share them. I always say like podcasts are hard to grow, but they do have a deep connection with the audience and that we all really enjoy doing this. Now on to the conversation. Well, it was quite a day in media, though. I, I was overwhelmed by the headlines. Oh, my God. I know. Let's get into it. Let's talk. Let's talk about it. Well, yeah. no, but it's just like I, I opened up the Wall Street Journal and I was just like, well, the top three stories or four stories are all media related. There was Tucker. There was Don Lemon. There was Steph Schnell. Shell. There was Disney layoffs. There's a lot. There's yeah. BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed. But we're going to go backwards to go forwards because I think we need to talk about BuzzFeed because I think you'll have an interesting perspective in particular, Troy, as you always do. Let's be honest here. But you sort of lived in this this era and and were really knee deep in it. And I, I think of this era, the BuzzFeed era. I used to call it BuzzFeed envy because so many publishers, it seemed like part of their strategy was being defined by BuzzFeed. And because BuzzFeed was sucking the oxygen out of the room a lot of times. 
And look, people would de- badmouth it, but then they would be following in BuzzFeed's footsteps. And it probably lasted through 2016 when they missed their numbers by 60 million. We're <laughs> like, wait, maybe we shouldn't follow this playbook. But first of all, obviously BuzzFeed News, it's bad for everyone who loses jobs and stuff like this. I don't think anyone was very surprised. It didn't seem to make sense for the last several years. But what was the, what is your takeaway from that era? Or if it was an era? I think it was an era. I mean, I'd have to start with a couple of thoughts. First is, I think that the, that era, if you want to call it that, was there's a sort of the idea that anybody who can create a little media brand and a website and content is entitled to be in the media business. And that's not the way it used to be. You had to either be privileged by a brand that had been around for a long time or make enormous investments by starting a publication, many of them failed, or by setting aside a lot of money, time and energy like they did at Condé with Portfolio Magazine that ultimately never made it off the lift pad. But like being in media, I think that we kind of created this weird entitlement where we thought we could fund a media business, anybody could be in the media business. You don't need that many people in the business. I just thought I would would start there. I have to say that I think so much of what they did, I had at times BuzzFeed Envy because lots of times their execution was really, really good. I mean, setting aside what I think is a kind of flawed brand concept and a bunch of kind of reckless expansion and stuff, they did a lot of great stuff. They did great journalism inside of BuzzFeed News. They built better platform tech than other people. When everybody wanted social traffic, they kind of led that that race. They did video really well when it was a kind of nascent capability in digital media. They built a big food site. They brought ambition to it. They opened up bureaus all over the place. So they did a lot of good stuff. But I guess my more sober take would be that media at its most basic is content and distribution. And if your distribution model is unreliable, your business is going to be subject to the whims of somebody else's decision making. And they tried to turn the notion of social distribution into a virtue. They built all kinds of tech that could rank stories and filter that information back to the journalists. And it became their sort of trademark. It was built into the name and all that. But then when that stopped working because it wasn't something that they could control, it really messed up the business. And when the distribution side of a business gets destabilized, it's really hard to manage the rest of the company with any sanity because you get in this kind of cycle of decline. Tremendous admiration. Obviously, lots and lots of mistakes were made. I think Jonah was an unlikely leader of a company like this. Whenever I talked to him, I thought that he was incredibly smart, but he was like this kind of media philosopher and didn't come from the business side, didn't come from the edit side but really came from this kind of idea of approaching the intersection of content and technology in a new environment as a kind of virality hacker and just someone who had a very different point of view. And I think that worked really well. Yeah, I guess it kind of makes me uncomfortable, the whole thing, because I just look at this long string of pivots and innovation and trying different things. And I was just thinking about it at BuzzFeed, whether it was just geographic expansion, adding bureaus in London and Australia and all this stuff, the video expansion, TV production, lifestyle content, really aggressively going after shopping and selling their own products, quizzes. It just makes you, when you reflect on it, realize while the sort of aperture was wide open for anybody that wanted to experiment in media and build a media business, it was also pretty harrowing. There was very, very little stability and you were kind of only as good as your latest trick. 
Obviously, there was an opportunity to sell, and it was funny. I was having coffee with John yeah. Steinberg in in London the other day, and that was the moment <laughs> he, he left. The, he left the company. Where were you? Where were you? Somewhere. In like oh, I went to his new office, his fresh new office. His office is in, I think, it's in Mayfair. Yeah. yeah. He learned his you know, lesson. I think he's he's back to search. Go back to the more def- dependable distribution algorithm. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the misalignment of complex, which I think has been hard on both of those companies when they came together. Even the acquisition of HuffPo came at the right price, but then there was the sort of overlap between HuffPo and BuzzFeed News and what was the difference. So a bunch of, to me, a, a bunch of mistakes probably should have really tightened up the business a lot earlier and brought costs in line with revenue. Maybe looking back, it's easy to say this, but news was never going to work to me with its level of ambition as purely an ad-supported endeavor. Lots of mistakes, but also I want to kind of salute those guys because they did a lot of cool stuff. And we certainly, I admired much of what they did. And when they did something like news, they brought in good people and they made good product. When you were at like Hearst, I mean, you guys ran profitable businesses. And so I think a lot of times in this era, yeah, it was, I think you used the word hacking. And Jonah, I think is, at his heart, he's like a media hacker. He came out of MIT Media Lab and he was doing the whatever sweatshops thing on Nike's. And he wanted to mm-hmm. run a bunch of viral experiments. Then he had a media company around it. And this was an era where everyone was trying to hack distribution, hack this, hack that. It was the era where Upworthy came out of nowhere and then got some like Forbes cover, which is like the kiss of death for anyone or anything. It seems. Hey, like. hey, hey, go, go yeah, easy. I said it's the fastest guys. one, the 50 million. And what is it, little things? I mean, Joe parlayed that thing into it was like they were selling dog food. All of a sudden they were in the media business. That one like, I never, that one, that one. I never quite understood. They were doing feel good. Kind of, well, that's the thing. You could hack your way into fooling yourself that you had massive distribution. But little things, little things as a brand? No, not going to work. It's the little things. You say it's the little things. But Let's I think ask the our, branding, our, our brand consultant, Alex, little things, <laughs> thumbs up or thumbs down on that as a media company. I think you're we'll muted, you Alex. Do. This is like a Zoom call. Oh, sorry. Thumb- did Alex quit the podcast? I mean, I have less to say about all this. I don't know. He really didn't like this topic. Yeah, I'm fine with, <laughs> I'm fine with this topic. I get. What do you think Buzz- of the BuzzFeed lo- lo- logo, Alex? Do you like the BuzzFeed logo? I liked what they ended up doing with it. I always actually quite liked their design. They used to have these little labels that used to say like, yeah. Win and lol. Arrow up was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. I never liked how much it was based around virality and the metric of it. I always thought that was distasteful. And when you build a brand around these types of hooks, all the way to your logo being a graph that goes up, I think once again, nobody learned from the time Google changed the algorithm and destroyed businesses. I think Mahalo and places like that were wiped off the face of the earth. Well, so, it means goodbye. It means hello and goodbye. So yeah, yeah. fitting it, name, Jason. Yeah, and because <laughs> it was a Jason Calacanis business, nobody was sad about it. But in this case, once again, they pegged their business to social in this case and NSEO in some ways. So. Yeah, but I think that from a brand perspective, see, to me, I remember actually talking with with John when they first started news and I asked a very tactical question. I was like, you got to change the site. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you cannot have LOL, OMG, WTF under Medicare fraud uncovering that. You just haven't aligned yourself. Like what you're claiming you're going to do with this news. I don't understand how it belongs in the place where 15 things only a middle child needs. 
And I feel like publishers in this era, because of Facebook and because of the feed, they thought trained people not to make those changes. You can say like newspapers have all sorts of different things, but like the idea of building a really ambitious newsroom and winning the Pulitzer, which they did, it just didn't line up with the rest of the business. The business was about catching virality and then transferring that expertise to brands through an agency model. It never translated to a news business. And news is often subsidized by other businesses, but I never really understood how there was any alignment between the news business and what the news organization, because it wasn't a business, and the overall business itself. Am I missing something? I don't think so, no. I'm wondering who can we contrast BuzzFeed with from that era that built something more resilient? Would it be insider? Well, they it, they they laid off ten percent. But I mean, everybody's laid laid off people, so I don't think that disqualifies them. One could consider. I mean, certainly the exit was a success. Oh, the exit! I mean, come on, Henry belongs in the Hall of Fame of media exits. Yeah, yeah, but but okay, so he got that right. Is Insider going to be around? It's diversified, right? We're going to criticize BuzzFeed for not having a subscription line item. Insider's a subscription product. It's born of the same era, used many of the distribution tactics in terms of headline hyperbole and getting distribution on social and jacking Google and all that. They're doing fine. Who else? Politico had a great exit, more focused. Yeah, but Politico was born of a previous era. It came out of blogging, not out of the social media stuff. Okay, fair enough. Axios? Axios? I think Axios is because they did the bullet points. So that's it. Format matters. (laughs) No, I mean, they executed against, they found a high value area where they weren't going to get eaten up and spit out by platforms. At the end of the day, BuzzFeed hitched its business to Facebook. Every time I talked with Jonah, the money was right around the corner. It was like over years. It was like the audience numbers kept getting bigger, then it became video numbers, and the money was always right around the corner. Who are we talking about? Think about BuzzFeed. (laughs) No, but the person you were saying. Oh, Jonah Jonah Peretti. Do you want to maybe kind of run through some of the key players here? Okay, but what what is what just happened here? Did Alex just realize he's on a podcast about BuzzFeed? <laughs> I think so. I think he quit and then he rejoined the podcast. Oh my god! I think he's high. That'd be fun. <laughs> no, it, why is he wearing? He's wearing some tropical garb. Is that a robe or is it a shirt? Uh, it's a robe. I'm wearing. Bring your full underneath. self to the podcast, Alex. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. So Charlie, we, don't do you want to go through? <laughs> but I just think you guys keep mentioning people by their first names and it's hard to track. It's fucking Jonah Peretti, dude. Jonah Peretti's famous. He, so one of he the wrote Jonas Brothers? shops on a Nike Air. Yeah. He has a Wikipedia page. Everyone knows him. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anytime I talk with Jonah Peretti over the years, the money was right around the corner from the platforms. And of course, it never really arrived. I think that's the problem of hitching your strategy to the platforms. It's common knowledge now. I would guess. But I think back then, it really wasn't. I got a message from someone during that era. I just want to read some of it that he sent to me. Because he had been at a lot of legacy publications, quote unquote, the ones that are still around that are profitable. And he said, BuzzFeed, they acted as the weights used by deep sea divers. They brought everyone down. Once there, we saw some interesting things and learned new skills, but we were all still swimming at the bottom. Once they started having success with social bait content, their pull was irresistible to even the most storied of media brands. The pressure from the higher-ups on middle managers like me was always to be more like them and early business insider. By the time they smartened up and started winning awards, the damage was already done. We were all prisoners of the platform's traffic machine. And regardless of what we were saying to ourselves, 
we were optimizing for that. They set back subscription strategies, paywalls, and other business models by at least five years, my rough estimation. A sliding door history of the media would ask what monetization strategies would different publications have pursued if BuzzFeed hadn't existed. Great wow. note. That's cool. Yeah, you can tell. They are a writer. Yeah, it reminded me, I remember sitting at Hearst and someone from, I can't remember the name of the person, from the New York Times Innovation Task Force set up an appointment. That sounds like a serious thing. About the Innovation Task Force? Yeah, do you, you remember the innovation? Yeah, 2014, for, for those who do not remember, a seminal moment, the New York Times, BuzzFeed actually broke the news. They actually published the New York Times Innovation Report, which name checked BuzzFeed 23 different times. It was obsessed with BuzzFeed. Yeah, I remember wow. we were talking about at the time how much work content had to do to get distribution. I remember that conversation specifically. And that it wasn't enough to just create a piece of content and assume that it had distribution, but you had to push it out into the world and it had to do a whole bunch of work for you, which is kind of the beginnings of something that BuzzFeed had known for a long time, which is that the way that you frame content with a headline and inside of a social environment really could determine its success. And the New York Times was desperate to learn. There was a lot of, there was a lot of pressure on them at the time because I think there was a prevailing idea that BuzzFeed was a real threat to them. Yeah. That's why they were referenced 23 times in that document. I think this point was that they pulled the entire industry with them in this direction. Yeah, bastards. I'm having a hard time paying attention because I just found out that Jonah Peretti's sister is Chelsea Peretti. You didn't know this? No, I just I'm finding a lot of new things out. You got to get on his Wikipedia page. Uh, that's what I that's what I did because I, oh, okay. I was feeling inadequate for this conversation. So what happens next? Okay, Buzzfeed is gone. Nobody cares. I think we just discovered a format. We can bring topics that Alex doesn't know anything about to the table, and he can ask us questions about it. Alex yeah. might be from Alsace-Lorraine or wherever in Europe, but he's true Californian, and that like they don't care about the past or the present; they only care about the future. That's right. Because that's forward. how they make money. Honestly, like I know it, it's funny because I, I listen to a lot of media podcasts, especially and read a lot of media stuff, especially after doing this podcast. And it's amazing how how much attention this got. The people I told you, oh, BuzzFeed News was shut down. Most people said, "What? There was still a thing." Like most people thought BuzzFeed stopped existing. By the way, guys, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but nobody gives a shit. <laughs> and so, and so, and, and you know, real I, talk I, from I mean, Alex. And his band of merry band of robots. It's bad that people lost their job. I don't know if BuzzFeed had become an important part of people's media diet. I think the perspective is important, but I also feel like I need to bring up something. Someone sent a comment this week that they were going to install an Alex blocker. Someone who was have. <laughs> heavily invested in the future of advertising had yeah, decided sure. that you had, yeah. that you needed to be silenced. Yeah, when I start selling ads on this podcast, you're going to need to tone down the anti-ad rhetoric. It's it's easy to upset the Catholics when you're an atheist. But I don't know how where where this takes us. Yeah, what I would love to figure out is where do you think this goes next? There are still brands like Insider, Axios, and places like that that seem to be doing pretty well. Maybe their cost structures are different. Maybe they're more diversified. I watch a lot of insider content. The only insider content I ever watch is why is this so expensive or whatever that show is called. And they find some weird vegetable that costs a lot to grow. And I watch that a lot. So I don't think there's one like future. Well, I got a text from, from someone who's building, I guess, what they would say is one of what comes next. And I said, what is the thread with all this stuff? And this person had said, no more general interests, no big newsrooms, no programmatic, no big sales forces. That's one vision. I think that's kind of right. 
Really? Yeah, but I think this is part of the shrunken ambition of media. The conversations I have most are, you know, is like, what's working right now? I mean, you've brought up nothing is working. You know, Hillary Fry wrote, who I worked with very briefly at Adweek. She's now the Slate editor-in-chief. She wrote, all the stuff that worked before isn't working. And you hear this repeatedly. It has been this year of hacks was always trying to hack things. But now it's like, can't hack. Search might stop working. Commerce isn't working the way it used to. Social has never really worked. Video, eh. But it works until it doesn't, right? This is another conversation around platform owners. There's maybe a reason why all these writers are flocking to newsletters via Substack. It's not because that's an incredible innovation. It's just because we've been worried too much. This is like everybody retreating to the countryside after the pandemic, going, fuck it, back to our roots. We're going to do newsletters. We're we're not getting excited about any new platform. A pastoral life. Yeah. And the people who are saying, you know what? Social is dead. You should move all your content to YouTube. That shit might happen to YouTube. You still don't own any of it. I want to defect to Europe, and the summer is the best time to defect to Europe. Yeah. It's useful, guys, to think about the economics of this. Brian, how many page views do you think is a successful BuzzFeed news article? Hmm. What would you estimate? 20,000? Yeah, probably less. Yeah, 10 20, to 20,000. Okay, so what do you think the yield is, or as they say in the business, the RPM of a BuzzFeed page? Monetized Wait, a news programmatically. Page? Yeah, news the page. thing is, like, they didn't even start this thing with any programmatic advertising. It was still all. That's what I'm saying. There was no alignment with the business. Fair strategy. enough. Fair enough. But assume that that there was a bunch of banners on the page. I would estimate the RPM to but be. That's t- the problem, to, Troy. To, no, but dude, that's they put they put the ban- they put the banners on eventually. What I'm just trying okay. to explain is the just kind of raw economics of the problem. Okay. You have 10 to 20,000 page views on a decent news article. The yield on the page is probably $10. So you got five banners that are $2 each. Okay. So that's 10,000. Yes. 10,000 or 20,000 page views is between 100 and $200. That 100 or $200, that's your revenue. And your content costs have to come in under 30% of your business. Let's assume that was $200 times 30. You could pay $60 to have that article written. And even then, you don't have a particularly good business. So the whole thing, the maths, the maths aren't very good, right? But the thing is, it's never news has never been a very good business outside of cable news, right? It has always been subsidized. True, but it's news and it's more. But if you're going to have a money-losing news operation... You better think pretty clearly what your overall strategy is and how that aligns with your strategy. Bloomberg, for instance, the FT had a great deep dive into the future of Bloomberg. Now, it's not the deep dive that I would be interested in because it's about the real Bloomberg business, which is a terminal and a data business. They have a a quote-unquote successful media business that's $500 million. That's sizable. It's 4% of the revenue of Bloomberg LP. It's a break-even business at best. No, but you just have to layer it all together, right? You got to take that page revenue that, that we just talked about. You have to have subscription revenue on top of that. You have to have more than news content. You have to have high yield lifestyle content. And you got to make all of that work. You can't just rely on a shitty lifestyle business, which BuzzFeed has, subsidizing a terrible news business. Just the math will never work. Okay, so, so that's what I'm saying. There's no strategy when you're saying, we're going to take our terrible news business and subsidize it with a shitty lifestyle business. That doesn't sound very compelling. I didn't go to business school, but it doesn't sound... Well, the lifestyle business was only shitty after the economics changed when the platforms changed the way they were sending traffic and advertising got less 
Wasn't it a good business for a second? No, it was always shitty. When did when when were all these profits that BuzzFeed made? When were that? I remember I had Jonah on. I was like, "When are you going to be profitable?" He goes, "We were profitable." I was like, "Which day?" <laughs> Which day? probably late l- late November. <laughs> on late November, November, one day on Tuesday. We were profitable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that was I mean, a, this it, is the problem with the venture capital thing. So it's, it's a bad business that's dead. Back to my point. Who gives a shit? If you're going to subsidize news, I think it's better to subsidize news with the high margins of a terminal business than it is to subsidize news with venture capital money. And a lot of that money, by the way, came from really scared traditional media companies that were doing hedging strategies. How nuts was it that NBC Universal poured $200 million into BuzzFeed rather than into NBC News? Hearst was an investor in BuzzFeed, but earlier had less money. But Hearst made a yeah, lot of there were others. You had to look at the psychology of opening Google looking for something and having BuzzFeed being the first two spots of every single thing you're searching. And that makes you pretty fucking anxious if you're a media company. You know what yeah. I mean? I mean, that's the thing. It's, I'm not saying that those were smart decisions. They were just emotional and there were a lot of bad investments in tech. CNET was bought and resold for many more times what it was worth and is, is not worth a lot today. So all of these businesses oh, are CNET's going. A, but here, oh, oh, but CNET is very profitable. Uh, as it, an SEO farm. Yeah. Yeah, for now. I mean, this is this is the media that's working, right? Right, like right, the media right that now. Is right, right now. Over the next three months, yes. What is working is the least glamorous parts of media. Decision media, demand gen. All that shit's going to be replaced with AI, though. Oh, here we go. Here's the pivot. <laughs> I don't have the timestamp because we I mean, start. let me get into CNET right now. The first CNET article at the top of their page, the big picture above the fold is 13 AirPod Pro tips you should be using. There's not 13. Okay, but where does it? Can you Google like AirPod? <laughs> no, no, I, I'm sure. But what I'm saying is like. Well, that's like, their homepage. Right. But they're like those little fish that s- swim next to the whale and feed off their like whatever whale dirt. If the whale dies, those fish are dead too. So here's what I'm worried about. Honestly, like the with BuzzFeed happen and I'm like, okay, maybe what I'm more worried about is I keep hearing how bad a business news is. Who's going to pay for investigative journalism and stuff like that? How are we going to do that? Does it need to just be state funded? Do we just need a BBC everywhere in every country? No. We took a right turn right into AI and the European stuff. I think we should have state-funded, AI-powered investigative journalism. (laughs) No, no. Investigative journalism is a perfect example of it's completely, it is an unprofitable (laughs) and it needs to be subsidized. Now, where those subsidies come from, I think is an interesting question. Well, it's Bezos right now. It's like Bezos buying uh, the Washington... I feel like I just witnessed witnessed the collision of Europe and Silicon Valley right inside (laughs) of Alex's microphone. (laughs) <laughs> My wife's in Italy right now and she's like, it's amazing. It's the middle of the day and there's a massive line to get ice cream in Milan. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's you know. hustling to the office. I'm trying to just move the conversation to a place where, okay, this bad business that's hung around for too long is dead. We keep saying that news is a terrible business. What does subsidizing mean? Who has the motivations to subsidize? Wait, 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 wait. Why are we talking subsidies already, Alex? Why do you always talk subsidies? We have lots well, of news. We have it. lots. There's lots of news. There's more news than I can read. I can read the Atlantic. I can read the FT. I can read the Wall Street Journal. I can watch it on TV. There's all kinds of news. There's no shortage thing, of news. There's too much news, and there's particularly too much political news. And the reality of news that I think a lot of people don't discuss is its entertainment. Choosing to consume news is not any better than choosing to consume the Kardashians on a lot of levels. 
ourselves. We try to convince ourselves of that. But really, reading about what's going on in these corners of the world, that it has no impact on me whatsoever. I do it because I'm interested in it, the same way as I read like nonfiction books. And right now, the market is, is saturated for news content, particularly political news content. We need less of it, not more. But political news content is not something that's particularly hard. Politicians want their news to get out, so they're essentially what you have in political newsrooms is mostly people who capture that information and edit it into something and maybe add some commentary on top of it. I'm talking about like serious, the two things that are disappearing. I keep hearing, I'm not a media professional, are investigative journalism and local journalism, local newspaper, local news like that. These are two things that I think are important outside of the finding out what's happening somewhere where that doesn't really impact you. And I think part of what BuzzFeed was maybe showing or trying to do was being like a modern new purveyor of news that wasn't being handled by a 200-year-old institution. My take is particularly mid-sized to large cities will represent a really good opportunity for news companies that tweak their cost structure and figured out how to stay in those markets because it's a protected, just like it was in the old days when it was an extraordinary print business, they're little local monopolies. Hearst, for example, runs the Houston Chronicle. Big town, lots of money. They run two sites there. One is a paid subscription property. The other is called the Quran, which is a free, kind of less rigorous free news property. And I think that they're not going to be challenged by anyone. I think those are going to be markets if they can get the cost structure right. Those will be good markets for them. And, and then you're seeing Axios experiment with really lean news in smaller markets. Green shoots, local news in medium and large markets. You get local news opportunities that will be, I think, dominated by one player where you can make the economics work. So in places like Houston and San Francisco and Dallas and Philadelphia, you're going to have companies that over the next you know several years and have been adjusting to the sort of economic or the digital e realities for some time. And I think that owning a local news market is going to be a fine business. I think it's going to be yeah. harder in small towns and you're going to see folks try to do those with kind of hyper-efficiency. But Yeah, it'll be a patchwork. But local news, I think, will be okay. Yeah, Investigative news, I don't see the drought there that you see, Alex. I think there's lots of good work going on. Uh, yeah. I mean, so maybe news isn't under attack then. I think we no, I don't think it's like... It's, look, <laughs> this is just all the same story. I mean, the internet has been a disaster for the news as a business. That's without a doubt. Wherever you want to put the blame, but the reality is the reality. It has been bad overall for the business. Most businesses have not done well. There are instances in local. Seattle has a really interesting paper there. Probably fits in with the model that you're talking about. In Minnesota, Star Tribune's doing well. Glenfest in Philadelphia, maybe they can make that work. I mean, I mean, I look at it and I think, would I rather be a women's lifestyle publisher like a Cosmo or one of the bustle properties or something, struggling and competing with 10 other folks and with social media and with influencers? Or would I rather have a dominant position in a mid to large size city as a local news provider? And I would choose the latter. 
because it's unique and differentiated and because you can own the market. Yeah, I think we'll see new models beyond local news. I mean, I think there's there's lots of different, it's just the entire, I mean, you wrote a little bit about it this week, I think, and this ties into AI. You need to, I think, as you would say, like refactor the organization. And <laughs> a lot of these <laughs> things is about aligning your resources with what your your mission is and, and, and what the business model is. Well, this era of digital publishers are like BuzzFeed are really struggling. I'm involved with a handful of media businesses that are either super niche, pointed at high value B2B categories, or like you said, focused on lower funnel stuff that are just having a great year. They're doing great. And look at your small business, Brian, is off to a good start this year. Yeah. Chamber of Commerce, success story. I'm optimistic. I actually am. We pretend that there's one publishing industry and there's not. There's many of them. And you always hear this anytime it's, well, media is in a time. Rafali is like, well, not B2B. It's okay, fine. But the dynamics in B2B are so, so different than general news. They're completely different categories. They shouldn't be lumped mm -hmm. together. I mean, if you wanted to make an elegant transition to AI stuff, I don't know if Alex said it on the pod last week, but he either said it there or to me privately. He was talking about how AI had become the infrastructure for universal entities. It reminded me of some of the work that we had done at Hearst, integrating analytics and a bunch of other kind of data services into Slack. I just thought what Alex had said was really prescient and was going to kind of like that you could see ways of rebuilding the enterprise with AI kind of central to how people work together in ways that just made everybody's life easier and made the company more productive and more creative. So this idea that for little things, Alex, like building mid-journey in, into Discord, cool idea, just the beginning of how AI will support communication and brainstorming and creativity. And then when you were talking about how you were kind of shaping chat GPT to become kind of part of, of how it eventually manage the narrative of games that you were working on, to me is amazing. That's cool stuff and stuff that people can apply that in all kinds of ways in companies. I was actually thinking about this again. Might not be for the podcast, but like should build an AI media company. Well, so like if you're thinking about it. I mean, I wanted okay. to. So I don't like even Vox know if I want to talk about this here. I hear no Vox. Vox had their CMS. Oh, he's gone. He's gone. He left. <laughs> oh no. Oh boy. Comedy of errors. Yeah, it's terrible. And I haven't done any of them. No, no, you've been I just perfect. Want that fucking By the way, your audio has been perfect. You're technically. <laughs> the yeah. fuck? The one day I've got my shit together. Uh, yeah, we were talking about AI stuff. AI media company. And then you got excited and you tore off your microphone <laughs> cable. You started talking about how AI had become creative infrastructure for your company. That excited me. That connected to an idea that I had been a real advocate for years ago about how data-powered chat became central to how I wanted to manage a company. Mm -hmm. Then I started thinking about people versus algorithms and how we could actually become hyper efficient in serving the audience. So combining deep kind of human content creation with AI supported aggregation in ways that filled the gaps but also was very useful to the audience by training the AI to find the things that fit through our lens. And then I got thinking about that kind of extrapolated into other types of media production, video in particular, and how that was all going to become much more accessible to small teams. 
And that if you just kind of put all of that together with people that shaped it, that really cared about their audience and wanted to make it great, you could build a super lean, really engaging media company, but with 10 people. Yeah, right? I, find I think it's like, in, it's like people versus algorithms, but it's humans and AI. A lot of times these things, and they start off oppositional, but the answer is usually both, right? So we got to so, change the name of the podcast? People with yeah, algorithms. <laughs> yeah, we made friends. We made friends. I think that we're going to see that there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff that can happen within the news sourcing, the writing, but specifically just the way we deliver the news using AI. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but do you remember? I do. That little, I do, Alex. I know. You remember everything? Like. Do, you, do you remember that little quartz site that was essentially? Yeah, the chat. chat. Yeah. That's that what thing it's going to look like. That thing was great. So instead of headlines, that. you're going to have prompts and then it will go into you're having a conversation with a human. But you know how being at the end, it's a choose your own adventure thing. If you need more information, because a lot of times what you're trying to do with a news article is you're putting different things in there. And sometimes you got to do a lot of B material, but then kind of like you were saying about Jonah Peretti, it's people don't know Jonah. There should be options in which personally for me, a lot of times when I'm reading these articles, I know all the B material already. So I kind of want to get rid of it. And a lot of that stuff should be done by AI. It should pull out of an LLM. There's different ways I feel like you can meld them together. And particularly if you have your own unique corpus of data, that's going to be a tremendous advantage to be able to train AI on that. So Which I think is it can change. I, I wonder how valuable a company like Twitter is going to be as an AI news machine. I really think that the corpus here in news, like who has the best corpus, the most real-time corpus of data? Now, they don't technically own any of it, right? Because it's on, on loan from the users. When you're looking at real-time news and it being generated by an AI, there are very few places like Twitter, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, but that's going to be like the pure sort of AI approach. And I don't think that that is interesting, to be honest with you. I think it's interesting to people who live near you. I don't think in general it's going to be, but maybe. Every morning, I ask Siri to play the NPR news update on the hour, and it just gives me that five-minute, you know. Oh, yeah, that's fine. And that type of stuff is definitely something that could be replaced with something that is entirely generated, voice and all. What's working in media right now? I think you could broadly say one of the things that's working is quote-unquote personality, whether it's creator or whatever. Now, working in media is you have to define it down. I read something from Goldman Sachs that 4% of the people in the quote-unquote creator economy earn six figures or above. 4%. Mm. There's no middle class. Mm. In Substack, it's something, the Pareto principle has been redefined where it's like a 95-5. It's 95% of the revenue is generated by 5%. And see, you can probably solve these problems because the creator economy needs to, in some ways, rebundle. There's too many people out there doing too many different things. I think that you can see a way to use AI in order to take the best of the promises of the creator economy and human connection right. and to combine it with the efficiency gains that should result from AI. A lot of the content is written and rewritten. Didn't I hear that that special kind of Thanksgiving issue of Martha Stewart is actually like 70%? Allegedly, I don't have any proof, but you know, most of it is some sort of remix of what came before because a lot of that stuff is evergreen or gets reconfigured. So you could build a much more efficient organization where you write things once and you write it in a way that is not quite like an article, which is much more 
dynamic and, and linked in its content. The same way I'm writing this narrative stuff for our studio, everything's linked and, and there's relationships between pieces of content, which then means that on demand, you can create content that is relevant for a specific user. Yeah, I, right? I mean, I think we could have an absolute blast. I even hesitate to talk about this here. You're doing but, it for the fans. I mean, I know. So it doesn't mean that I would stop making a weekly newsletter. It does mean that you would build some automated filters to find things that were interesting every morning to your audience. It does mean that you'd probably do a seven-minute audio news summary that was shaped by AI and read by Snoop Dogg or whoever Alex comes up with, maybe by Grimes or something like that. The only reason I said that, by the way, is that she just came out publicly and said that anybody could take her vocals and or her voice and make music and if it became a hit she just wanted half the money god that's all we need more grimes music so we don't we don't have to use <laughs> grimes <laughs> yeah it's true okay but you get the point i mean yeah i think yeah, that yeah. if you kind of reimagine all of this and you make put humans at the controls but you creatively apply technology i think we could build something remarkable i think yeah. we should do it i think what's interesting it's like i've been thinking about the semaphore and all these different attempts to reinvent the news article if you will and to me it has to be conversational and the only way you can make these things conversational for a bunch of different people is by applying technology and using AI to do that. I just think people are going to get habituated into the chat interface. I think Quartz was ahead of its time. Sorry, Quartz. Sorry, Zach. Alex, please just get your camera set up. Oh my God, this is a reversal. Troy gets to lecture you. <laughs> Okay, Troy. So what did we establish so far? Do you mind? So we talked about BuzzFeed. We talked about good decisions and bad. We then transitioned to sustainable media creation, Brian. Did we talk about that? Yeah, I think we did. what's working? And then, yeah, so what then, comes next? Because Alex wants us to talk about what's next. I want to talk about the past. So I think that what's next is creative application of technology to make media work more effectively, augmenting human creativity. TM. Yeah, it's a good tagline. Wow. What does that mean? Well, um, I someone think will that figure comes it out. next. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> My question was like looking forward, if BuzzFeed at some point was seen as the future of news, what is the future of news in this new world? And one that is maybe hopefully built on a more robust foundation than kind of hoping and praying that SEO or social media doesn't go away as a traffic source. And I do think that there's something there. And we could do it as part of this experiment, as part of the people versus algorithms brand, create something new. Let's do it. AI news, I'm telling you. And so AI news, there's three ways of looking at it. There's news about AI, which is, I don't no, know what we're talking absolutely about. absolutely not. Um, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it. We're not going to take any investment. Okay. As of today, you guys are not on the cap table, but I will make you <laughs> shareholders in okay. the media brand. And we will use this podcast as a way to share the things that we're learning with the audience and we'll get her yeah, going. It'll be organic. That sounds yeah. great. It'd be good, Brian, if we could get just a few shekels to underwrite it. Yeah, yeah, no. I'll put some. There's going to be advertising that's involved. Although I think a lot of this is to have like true alignment. I keep going back to alignment because I want to make it happen for this episode. I do think that came out of this year is it's really important to have alignment with the your audience. And I think a lot of times the alignment that was taking place 
coming out of this era was in alignment with the advertiser, not the not the audience. And I think yes. that built a contradiction in these models that was unsustainable. Yes, and that's why. And the incentives are, which is why advertising, I know advertising cannot go away. I'm, I'm not an unrealistic person, but I do think that advertising incentivizes the wrong decisions towards the product. And it does scare me that, for example, Netflix now, here in the last earnings report, Netflix shared that they make more money off an advertising-supported customer than a membership-supported customer, which scares me that they're just going to bring advertising back into Netflix. Things are cyclical. But I do feel like if we're going to commit to building this new AI news product in real time in front of this audience, that we try to do it without advertising, even though, even though I'm open to having advertising fund this podcast so we can make a few bucks to yeah, put back into the business. First of all, we're not going to run advertising. We're going to run tasteful, what do you call them, Troy? Tasteful integrations? Yeah. Expandos. <laughs> <laughs> Tasteful expanders. Partnership <laughs> partnership content. We should run some ads for people that fit into what we're doing. But how else yeah. would we make money, you guys? What are we going to sell? Some, I mean, it's a podcast. People aren't going to subscribe to it. What are we going to do? I don't know if that's true. I think maybe we should ask. First of all, people should start commenting and, and adding more reviews on the App Store, please, on the Apple podcast thing. But I think people pay for subscriptions. I pay for lots of podcast subscriptions. The subsidy sort of thing, I think, comes into play here. So people end up paying, get the heart of it, the stuff is, it's chat, it's conversation. And so I think a lot of this stuff is going to lead people to value in-person and like human conversation more than before. So I think there's, Could and we you look at it, you look at it with podcasts, having live events and stuff as part of the model. I think that's, yeah, fine. It doesn't scale, but there's a reason for, for that. Do you think we could get a European government to underwrite it, Alex? No, they're going to want to put GDPR on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Canada might do it. We could be more efficient Canada. than the CBC. I went to grad school to, and studied European politics and economics right when like the EU was really being formed by the Maastricht Treaty. And I was trying to go over the, the common agricultural policy. I don't study this stuff. I was going through and I'm like, we could literally say that our little teeny backyard and live in Belgium was arable land and get funded by the government. Everything I could see, I was like, it wouldn't be a large amount of money, but we we would be able to get some kind of subsidy. Can we get it's that? It's a great place. We should do that and fund our AI startup. So the future of, <laughs> with that, the future of news is us doing a, an AI startup. Nobody gives a shit about BuzzFeed. And I don't know what else we took from this conversation. I don't agree, I don't agree that nobody gives a shit about what, so just to close it up, what do you think people should take away from from the BuzzFeed thing? Because it sounds to me like a couple of things. It was never a good business. It wasn't particularly well run. And it never accomplished the things it was trying to accomplish and doesn't seem to be particularly dominant in culture today. What should we take away from all this? My big takeaway is whatever the next generation, and there's going to be a bunch of different people who start new media companies, is there needs to be a tight alignment. <laughs> At least I don't, there are too many contradictions to these models that the different parts were not aligned and that does not work. And the contradictions that inevitably, they collapse because you can't go on forever with that. And venture capital funding was a cover in many ways for a lot of these contradictions and the fact that of a business that wasn't working. Isn't the issue though, I mean, you, you raised it or was it Troy, but just, just enough media, isn't there? There's just so much news, so much media to consume. Do we need more media? Did we ever need the BuzzFeed? Does anybody need this podcast? Nobody needs this podcast. I walk around my neighborhood and there are 10 dispensaries and there are 10 pizza places within five blocks. I get that, but there's no way the financial district needs 10 of each. 
How much weed and how much pizza are you going to eat? I personally wanted to make this podcast because I couldn't find anything like it that talked about the topics we cover and how we cover them. I think there's something different about this podcast to a lot of the tech or... Okay, we have a founding, we have, we have one of those founding myths too. Oh, I just found a problem that I wanted to solve and then Troy's got the... <laughs> Troy's got the, the sales pitch. We just need step two or three, I guess, which is just making something valuable. You know, growing up, mm. I always thought, how I had we this make- problem. I was walking around to one of the ten pizza. No, but I mean, I mean, seriously, I do think, or at least we try to talk about things in a way that isn't covered. And I'm just like always a very focused topics like that that might not be covered. But maybe to me, the lesson about BuzzFeed is don't try. There's enough out there. <laughs> to all the entrepreneurs out there, no. there's better ways to make money. There's already yeah, too much shit. content. Space is too busy. Yeah, but like as Troy has pointed out, people will continue to make media. They're always going to make it. Yeah, and music. There used to be, I think, on Steam, which is one of big PC video game stores, I think just like 15, 10, 15 years ago, there were 320 games released a year or something like that. And today, it's every day there's a, that many games being released. And games are inherently more complex to make than most pieces of media because there are so many parts to it. I feel that the future issue is not about media creation, but it's about curation and discovery. And I think the people who are going to make a big dent are the people who use tools like the new AI tools to solve that problem rather than how many journalists can we hire. The media company of the future has no journalists. That's all I'm saying. I'm and hopefully no advertising. <laughs> More of Troy's friends are going to get upset. By, Dude, this got me a boat, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, I tried to read a website on my screen, and literally, there was a video playing at the top and a banner at the bottom, and the screen real estate in the middle was the size of my thumb, and that's where I could read the article. And so you're like, let me scroll, and then like it was a sticky player, and it came. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. That was a great innovation. I, and you know that shit probably was sold on some yacht at Cannes by people saying how advertising is saving media. Fuck it. Literally, yes, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I pitched that company. <laughs> so if somebody wants to make an Alex blocker and block these truths out, be my guest. They never got back to me, so we can leave it in. The irony is, I think you invented that ad product, Alex. <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? I feel so horrible. I think we covered that topic well. Should we yeah. now move to good good product? Or are we going to keep good this product segment? Uh, good product segment. I'm, I want to string three things together today. Shit. The first is, I love software that anticipates life's little troubles and helps you out. And the other day I was in Brooklyn Heights and I forgot where I parked my car, which is like sad because it means like I'm getting old. I was like, where did I put the car? And I opened up Google Maps and it told me. Oh, and I've had so, that. I love that. I had that, I remember, in Sicily once. It saved me. Yeah. So I thought that was a really helpful little thing. It knew that I had been driving. It planted a little flag where I had stopped and all I had to do. And I didn't, I wasn't aware of the feature. I was just like, oh my God, what street did I leave the car on? Then there was a little thing there that said, here's your car. So I appreciated that. A second one that I'll just add because that was brief was, I think it's hard for people to buy art. Years and years ago, I used to live near this sort of gallery area in Toronto and I would walk my dog down past these sort of emergent, cool new galleries that had come up on Queen Street West. I used to, when I had spare money, I would buy art from them. I've always found it hard to find good art. I want to support artists and I want to buy art. This week I used Saatchi Art. I think they licensed the Saatchi name. It's basically a global marketplace for art. 
where you can get on and there's a tremendous amount of supply. So you can kind of find really good stuff and you can explore artists and there's lots of little sort of curatorial packages that they put together. I bought a few pieces of art there and I thought it was a great service and it's, I haven't received it yet, so I'll keep you posted, but it's called Sachi Art. I like that. And the last one I sent to you guys, which I think is kind of hilarious and really maybe is a nice way to complete this episode. It's called JustComment.ai, and it's a browser plugin. You can find it at JustComment.ai. It's a plugin that you add to your browser that will write a bunch of junk in response to Twitter posts or posts on LinkedIn. And I'll just read the page and create your thoughtful comment without you having to do anything. <laughs> you, just put, you just put your <laughs> cursor into the field and now you can tweet your reply to anything. Hey, Elon Musk, great to hear you're tackling two serious issues, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so yeah. now you can you can participate in social media without without the effort. That's a nice idea. Oh, this feels both incredible and terrible for social media. I call these like fracking technologies. When we run out of things to suck out of the earth, we invent fracking so we can just, t- just suck out the stuff between the grains of sand. Social media has lost all its value. So we're just going to completely suck it dry by littering the field with AI comments. Yeah. 99% of the internet will be AI generated in five years. I see this is to me is the opportunity is because this is a continuation. All of the technologies and the optimization techniques are, have led to this moment where before, Troy, like you were saying, it was really difficult to start a media company or to publish. And, and then that went away. And then it became the only thing that was standing between you and starting a media business was having something to say. And so now even that can be optimized and outsourced and created by bots. We're just going to have bots creating content for bots. And that to me leads to the opportunity to have authentic human conversation that is actually furthered by bots, not just created by bots. I mean, who wants that? Does anyone want that? Want what? The immediate thing of being able to respond to every tweet. Do you want to read comments.ai content as a Absolutely human? not. Nobody wants to read it. So but the internet the is point? But the internet is full of stuff that people write that nobody wants to read. That's the internet. There's some friction into actually creating, to go back to our previous episode, into actually creating that kind of drivel. You actually have to like type out words and eh, it's tied to your name. I've seen this with executives having outsourced their tweets to people, which I think is the saddest thing possible. It is. Do like, you think anything sadder than hiring someone to write your tweets? I mean, maybe no. that's me as a writer. Troy, you're quiet. You don't you haven't hired someone. Oh, it just you? means you've made it. Is it? You know? No. I've, then again, this is this is probably me as a journalist type. Is it a long way away from having someone write your note to staff if you're a CEO of a big company? I used to have. A I don't think you should do that. Write stuff, but then I would edit it heavily. I wouldn't let our marketing. You know how they they send the sort of mail merge that would come from me or something telling you to go to a programmatic summit. I made myself write those. The marketing <laughs> team was like, "We'll write it." I'm like, "No, if you're sending it out under my name." I'm I'm gonna write it. Yeah. I, anyway, I, I'd I like to. Can, can we end the episode with something uplifting? Is there anything good that happened? Yeah. This week, Tucker Brian? Carlson got fired. Oh uh, yeah. Tucker Carlson got a uh, shakan. Don Lemon, whose husband was involved in a real estate transaction with me, has oh, also nice. been decapitated. Nice little humble brag there. It's the only what I had of like. We learned somewhere. things. Don Lemon's husband did some 
big. I thought it was interesting. My, my wife interesting. told me. I didn't even know. Chelsea Peretti's Jonah Purdy's sister. There's like a lot going on today. That's all uplifting to me. There hasn't been any uplifting news really outside of the the Tucker Carlson stuff for me. I think it's yeah. like actually it could be a positive like another end of an era. But I don't know if it will be an end of an era. Like cable news is a whole mess. We can get into that some other time. Yeah. I mean, I don't yeah. know if it's news. It's just cable. It's just this shouting stuff. But once again, it's 4 million people watch that show. It's not a lot of people. I don't get why these shows are so important. Hold no. it. When Gail King is doing an afternoon show with Charles Barkley on CNN. Yeah, the win there is that it's called King Charles, yeah. which is great. I think Charles could be a pretty good at TV. I mean, he obviously is very good at TV, but I think like he doesn't have to just do sports. I agree. And he's like an interesting character because he's he doesn't neatly line up. I understand why CNN wanted him. He doesn't neatly line up with the sort of... And I think that's what, if there's any thread between the Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson, it's they were of an era of Trump sucking the oxygen out of the room. Now, I assume we're going to go right back to the same thing, but who knows? Wait till Trump comes back. We're going to keep talking about him. Stay tuned for our AI-powered and deeply human, quite flawed new media company that you heard about here first because we've never discussed it before. That's right. It's true. Uh, All happening in real time. Yeah. We appreciate your support and hope that you like what we're about to create. Yeah. And we're not against advertising. We love advertising. We're going to have amazing, amazing, amazing swag. As everyone knows, we all look forward to advertising in our lives. We do. commercial art. Exactly. All right, cool. Thank you, guys. Yeah.